Good morning. I want to uh, invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to uh, Revelation chapter 22 this morning. And while you do that, I wanted to um, reiterate a couple things in that video. One, a, a couple people have expressed concern about the health of my fiddle leaf fig uh, tree in the background there. It was looking pretty sad, but we watered it and it's okay. So it's, it's going to make it. Um, but uh, more importantly than that... Um, Mostly, I just want to thank you um, for being here and being a part of this church. Um, God is doing incredible things here at Resurrection OC. And uh, our kind of December giving is a big part of how we fund the ministry of our church going forward. And so uh, if this is a part of, uh, if you consider Resurrection OC part of your, um, you know, you consider yourself a regular here, your church home, we would really encourage you and invite you to participate in um, in the uh, Christmas offering. If you're here for the first time or you're new or you're still checking us out, uh, please don't feel any obligation to give. But regardless, we would love to pray for you. And so when you came in this morning, uh, there was a red envelope on your seat and we would love, um, whether you fill that out this morning or um, sometime between now and the end of the year, you can drop it in the, uh, there's an offering box in the back, you can drop the card in there. And uh, we will be praying for you uh, throughout 2020. We'd love to partner with you in that way. Uh, with that said, I'm going to invite you to stand with me. Uh, it's our practice at uh, Resurrection OC, as it's been the practice of God's people for, for a long time to stand when God's word is read. And uh, it also has the added benefit of making it very clear when we're reading God's word and when you're hearing my words. So let's give our attention to God's word in Revelation chapter 22, verse 1. The Apostle John records a vision that he received from God, and he says this, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Oh God, we look to you now with whatever faith we can muster, and we ask, God, that you would speak through your ancient word. Would you help us to see Jesus more clearly? Would you form him in our hearts and in our minds? Would you uh, help us to do the work of Jesus as we leave here? We pray by the power of your spirit. Amen. You may be seated, please. <clears throat> well, Christmas is coming. And it's a busy time of year, and it's a fun time of year. It's a season of excitement and joy and anticipation and uh, and planning and preparation and shopping and various Christmas traditions that we have, uh, whether that's as a church or uh, with our families. And a, a big part, very, very important part of our family's Christmas tradition 
is the annual viewing of the most important Christmas movie uh, that was ever made, I think, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. And uh, we, wa- we can't, I mean, every year there's more and more movies we've got to get through before, so we started in like September this year. Um, but we have to watch Christmas Vacation every year because I, I don't know why, actually. And so th- why, why do we love this movie so much? This movie came out in like 1989. Uh, it's 30 years old. It's, um, I mean, nobody would really say it's a great movie. And yet, as a culture, we love uh, this movie. We love seeing Chevy Chase, you know, take his family, Clark Griswold, in the family minivan and get out there and drag his kids through the snow for hours only to dig a Christmas tree out of the ground by hand. Uh, we're just hoping uh, with him as he plugs in those Christmas lights that they're going to turn on and and uh, we just love the idea that he is going to risk life and limb and sanity to give his family the best Christmas uh, that they've ever had. Why do we love this movie so much? I think part of what we love about Christmas Vacation is that there is no irony in Clark Griswold's approach to Christmas. There is no cynicism. He is all in for Christmas. Um, I mean, really, despite the odds, <laughs> uh, just flop after flop after flop in this movie, um, and yet he just continues to go for it. And I wonder if maybe the reason that we love this movie so much, even after 30 years, is we love the idea of a guy who still believes in the magic without cynicism. Uh, we love, even if we can't quite muster that in ourselves, we love the idea that there's this man, as cheesy as he is, as silly as this movie is, uh, it's just all in for Christmas. I think we tend to be a little bit more cynical in our real lives. I noticed this even this last week, when you this time of year, when you ask somebody, "How you doing? How's, how's Christmas? Um, like kind of planning, preparations going?" You know, talking to friends, and, oh yeah, Christmas shopping's going well. We're almost done, but you know, then we got to figure out how to pay for it. You know, there's always that little barb, or um, yeah, it's a really joyful time of year. Everybody's got Christmas parties. It's great, but. Oh man, I'm exhausted and we haven't even gotten to Christmas yet. We've got a party every night this week. Uh, there's this kind of cynicism that invades our celebration of Christmas that invades really everything in our culture. Even when things are great, we feel like maybe it's too good to be true. And so I wonder if part of the reason we love National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation after 30 years is that it holds out this picture of like hope. <laughs> of a guy who really is just in it and believes it. I wonder if we love this movie because even if we can't quite muster that hope ourselves, we love the idea that somebody else can. This week I was talking with a group of friends, and one of them uh, said something that kind of caught my attention. Um, he, said it's like, he, he said, it's like I'm so afraid of being disappointed in life that I hold back and I don't really try. And I thought, man, that's a great way to describe kind of the mood of our culture. Um, Observers, people who write on this stuff, you know, they they say we are increasingly living in a cynical culture and a culture that is dominated by cynicism. And when you say it like that, it sounds overstated, doesn't it? Um, Like to say that we live in a cynical culture makes it sound like we live in a place that's gray and rains all the time and nobody can really believe in anything anymore. And we know that that's not true. 
But I think, I wonder if maybe um, we live in a culture where the cynicism we experience kind of feels a little bit like that. I'm worried that I'll be disappointed if I get my hopes up. And so I'm just going to go into every situation prejudging it in the negative, thinking like this probably isn't going to go that well, so I just won't have much hope or I won't really put in maximal, maximum effort. Because then if I'm disappointed, like I'm not even really disappointed because I was expecting to be disappointed right on schedule. Uh, so I pr- kind of protect myself from disappointment. This Advent, what we're doing here at Resurrection OC, uh, if you're here for the first, well, if you weren't here last week, you're probably going, we're looking at the book of Revelation and Advent? Why are we doing that? Well, Advent is this season where we prepare to celebrate Christmas while looking back to the first Advent of Christ. But also, historically, the Christian church has has place more emphasis in the season of Advent on looking forward to the second Advent, the second coming of Christ. And so Advent is really this time of kind of experiencing the tension of living uh, life in the world that we live in, where we live between the first and second coming of Christ, the first and second Advent of Christ. And part of Advent is about kind of reshaping our hearts and our desires to long for uh, what God says and holds out uh, as our future hope. This time when when he, he when Jesus will return. We live uh, in this time where not all is right with the world, and so we long for Christ's second advent when He finally returns, when our redemption will be complete, when we will want no more. And so, this advent, we're looking at the end of the story, what it would look, what it will look like when Jesus finally returns, when that advent hope comes to fruition. And so what I want you to see this morning is this. Um, in, the, in this picture, in Revelation 22, what's being held out for you here is your glorious future in Christ. When, when God says, you know, essentially, enough is enough, and Christ returns, and all is finally made right, and, uh, and you will long for nothing. How Advent shapes our hearts and allows us to live with hope in the present in this culture of cynicism. Because here's what I know. Living where we do, in the time where we do, in the place where we do, um, even, even to say, man, we live in a really cynical age, on the surface that seems absurd. Because on the surface, like we live in an incredible place. Uh, you are incredibly attractive people. Um, we are educated. We are happy. Uh, we are, you know, on the surface, on the surface, right? And yet I think that we all have a sense that just below the surface, there's a lot lurking. Um, there's kind of a latent anger that characterizes uh, many of our lives. We wrestle with anger. We are racked with anxiety. We struggle with a constant low-grade exhaustion, anxiety, uh, commitment phobia, on and on and on. For many, the, uh, the pain of loss uh, during this Christmas Advent season is, is, is particularly acute, isn't it? So we want to be happy and we look happy, and yet if I was to ask you, are you happy? <laughs> You'd say, well, I mean, not, not, I'm almost there. <laughs> Depends what I get for Christmas. <laughs> Few of us would be re- willing to respond with an absolute unqualified, yes, I'm happy. I'm content. I've kind of started doing this when people say, how are you doing? I say, I'm great. They look at me like I'm crazy. What is, what is wrong with this guy? You're not supposed to be great. <laughs> so look with me at Revelation 22. 
because it invites us to pursue a life not of happiness, but of hopefulness. And really what I want to do is explain this image of the river of life. Uh, I really only have one main point. So Merry Christmas um, this morning. It's my gift to you. One main point uh, with three sub points. (laughs) The river of life. Um, We saw last week... If you were with us last week in Revelation 20, 21, when Jesus returns, there's this picture of the new heaven and new earth, um, and, uh, and, and the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven uh, to earth. And we saw that this, this heavenly city that is our ultimate um, dwelling place, the ultimate uh, dwelling place where the redeemed people of God uh, will live in God's presence, it is both a, a place and a people. And John turns his attention in, Re- in Revelation 22, in this, in this final chapter of the Bible, to describe sort of the central feature of this heavenly city. And when he does that, he describes what flows, he describes this river that flows through the center of the city. It says, through the very middle of the city flows, in verse 1, the river of the water of life. What is the significance of this river that is at the center of God's plan for his people's eternal destiny. Well, if you were to look throughout the, you know, in kind of the entirety of the Bible um, for the word river, what you would discover is that there are 122 places where the Bible talks about a river. And of course, many of those are places where it's discussing like a specific river, like the Nile River or the Jordan River. And so if you take away all of the places where the Bible is talking about a specific river, what begins to emerge is that uh, a w- water and a river is this image that God uses over and over again uh, to describe the way that God will satisfy his people with his presence. The river of life is about God satisfying his people with his own presence. Uh, you see this throughout the Bible in Psalm 1. It describes what a blessed, or really a, a better word maybe for us to understand would be a contented life. What would it look like to be truly content? It says the person who is content is like a tree who's planted by streams of water. And, and what it's describing is, is having roots that go deep down into you know, the, the presence of God. So that whatever is going on circumstantially on the surface, you're flourishing. Now, would you describe your life as flourishing despite circumstances? Another place, John 4, uh, Jesus goes out of his way to have a conversation with a woman who is at a well in the heat of the day. And Jesus says to her, If you really knew who I was, you would have asked me for living water. And he goes on to say to her, I can give you water, and if you drink it, you will never be thirsty again. And so water, uh, over and over again, the Bible uses this imagery of flowing water, the water of life, rivers, to talk about the way that God satisfies his people. And the way that God satisfies his people is bringing the redeemed people of God into his presence where you will know him and be known by him. And you will feel no, feel no shame in his presence. And when we get a glimpse of the end of the story, or, or at least kind of the end of the story so far as we are able to conceive of it currently, 
what we see is that God's ultimate plan, the central feature of this city that will be our home, is the river of the water of life. God will satisfy you with his presence. That, that, that is the hope that is held out for us. Now, we live currently between, like I said, the first and second comings, the first and second advents of Jesus. And that means that we live in this kind of already and not yet world where we, we already experience some of this reality, and yet we do not yet fully experience it. We experience it in part, but not in full. We get an, an appetizer of God's presence, but we don't get the full meal quite yet. Or to put it another way, we, we actually experience real joy. We actually we do experience real contentment. Uh, we do experience real satisfaction in life, and yet it's fleeting, isn't it? Uh, a good meal with friends that you wish could go on forever, and yet it, it always comes to an end. Or, uh, you know, your child smiling at you. Or uh, the success, the feeling of accomplishment that comes with just kind of finishing a project at work and doing a good job. Like, we experience real joy and contentment in these moments, and yet they're always fleeting. And so part of the secret to enjoying life is to expect, uh, is, is to not expect contentment from things that cannot ultimately provide contentment. The river of the water of life at the heart of the heavenly city promises that God will one day satisfy you with his presence. And because you know ultimately that he will satisfy you with his presence, you can live now in light of that future hope. Kind of enjoying the appetizer because you know that the full meal is coming. And so what that means is that there's a sense in which we, sh- we, are, we are right to be cynical. Um, we are right to be cynical of the idea that we can be fully satisfied. You know, as I said last week, like if that Lexus with the uh, the red bow were to actually show up in your driveway on Christmas morning, we should be cynical. Or, or somebody, I was talking, I was at a party last night, and somebody was telling me on this drive to this party, she was saying the the billboards are in our culture are ridiculous. I said, "What are you talking about?" She said, "I saw this sign that said, do you want to experience true love?'" Buy a Subaru. <laughs> I mean, I had a Subaru. It was great, but then it died, and I had to buy a new car, and, you know. We should be cynical that a Subaru can provide true love. <laughs> and yet cynicism is not the final word. Cynicism is not the final word. And how do we know that? Well, we know that because another aspect, if you're taking notes, this is sub-point two, uh, of the one main point. <laughs> so, um, I totally threw myself off track there. <laughs> Another aspect of this imagery of the river is, is this, the river conveys the sense that, uh, of in- inevitability. It is inevitable that what is the, the satisfaction that is held out uh, as a promise, it is inevitable that it will come to fruition. Over... Um, uh, in Ezekiel chapter 47, there's a passage in Ezekiel 47 with very, very similar imagery uh, to, to this passage in Revelation 22. And what happens there is Ezekiel is given a vision of a river, and in Ezekiel 47, the, the river is flowing out of the temple of God. And Ezekiel is told to measure the river, and he measures the river, and it's ankle deep. And then he's sent back again and told to measure the river again, and it's knee deep. And then he's sent again, and it's and it's waist deep, and then he's told to go back and measure the river a final time. 
And it's so beautiful, he says. It was so deep that you could swim in it, but too broad to possibly swim across. And it's the, the sense that the river that flows from God's presence to satisfy his people, there is an inevitability that, that this promise will be one day fully fulfilled. And here we see the river, the promise held out for us as a hope, not coming from a building, not coming from the temple, but from the throne of God and the Lamb who is Jesus. The river comes from God himself, this ever-growing, ever-expanding source of our satisfaction. And the promise is that God will do it. It is inevitable. It will absolutely happen. It is simply a matter of time. Over the course of uh, 2019, I read a book called War and Remembrance. It's a, it's a novel that was written in the 70s. It's one of these things where now that I've finished this book, I now know what the longest book I will ever read is. It's like, I don't know, 1,800 pages or something like that. Um, but it's this great story. It's just a, it's a novel, but it plays out over the kind of backdrop of World War II. And what, one of the things that this novel just captures really well is what historians say, um, that as soon as the Allied soldiers landed in France... It was inevitable who would win the war. It was just a matter of details and timing. Uh, the American kind of war production machine had finally gotten up to speed. And um, the United States were building planes and tanks at such a rate. And uh, on, the, on the Eastern Front, the Russian army fighting against the Germans, had so many people that they could just send people wave after wave after wave, and you could never exhaust this like wave of Russian soldiers. And Hitler had so overextended himself and was just losing it on every level that as soon as Allied soldiers got boots on the ground in France, it was just a matter of time. It still took years, right? But one of the things this novel captures so brilliantly is the experience of prisoners in concentration camps in Eastern Europe and POWs in, in the South Pacific and even, uh, you know, even those uh, just ordinary people living in occupied France and Italy, knowing that if they can just hold on long enough, they will one day be free. It's inevitable. There was no doubt about the outcome. And Christians, what I want you to hear, living in the 21st century, is that there is an inevitability about God's promises being fulfilled. And it is so important that you hear and know that because uh, we live in this time where we hear these kind of myths about secularism. And the idea is that like 500 years ago, Everybody was a Christian, and then it's just been a long, like long slow decline uh, since then. And there's this idea that, like, given enough time and enough progress, that these crazy people who believe that there's a God are just going to go out of existence. That's the myth that our culture uh, believes. And yet... Uh, it's not even remotely historically accurate. If you were to study the history of the church, what you find is that 
kind of growth of, of, of biblical faith tends to come in waves and in seasons. And um, one, one metaphor I heard somebody use this week is that it's like the, the tide coming in and going out. And so if we're at a time where it feels like the tide of Christian faith is going out, it can feel like this myth of secularism, this long, slow decline of biblical faith uh, is, is inevitable, and yet perhaps we're at the point where the tide has gone out. And if the tide has gone out, it has to come back in. And while it may be true that in much of the Western world in the United States that uh, religious activity seems to be waning, at the same time, the Christian church in South America and in Sub-Saharan Africa and in Asia is growing like crazy. And China is now on course to be uh, the country with more Christians than any other nation on earth uh, very soon, even while an atheist government there tries to do everything it can to stamp out Christian faith. It is inevitable. You cannot stop the move of God. The point is simply this. The fulfillment of God's promise is inevitable. It is only a matter of time before this river that flows, that brings the satisfaction of God's presence into every area of your life. It's only a matter of time until it is realized. And the reason that I can say this with confidence is because of the source of this river. Look at what it says in verse 1. The river flows from the throne of God and of the Lamb. That is such good news because it means that the success of this promise is not dependent on your own effort or your own obedience. You will not be satisfied when you obey finally and fully. It is not, um, the fulfillment of this promise is not contingent upon a government plan or the marketing campaign of a company. It is not dependent on popular opinion. The success of this promise is based on the already finished work of God in Christ. And I, I love this little phrase that I just read in that verse. That it says that, um, you know, of and of the Lamb. The river doesn't just come from the throne of God, but it comes from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And what that means is that, um, well, here's what it means. What it means is that this is not a fairy tale. And what it means is that as we prepare to celebrate Christmas, we are not remembering this cute little story with sheep and angels and a baby and these poor, this poor couple that couldn't find a room at the inn. Like, it's just this fairy tale that we tell to make ourselves feel warm at this time of year. Um, It's not a fairy tale. Here's what it means. It means at a particular point in history, about 2,000 years ago, in a very particular place, a little town called Bethlehem, uh, there was a woman who gave birth to a child. And when that woman gave birth to that child, something utterly world-altering was taking place. The God who had thrown the stars in the sky and set the earth on its axis was putting on human flesh. And that baby was born in humility, but he grew into a boy, and that boy became a man. And we don't know a lot about what happened in those 30 years, but around the age of 30, he began to teach people about the kingdom of God. And when he began that ministry, we're told that God the Father was really proud of him. (laughs) And he lived and he taught and he told people that 
in his coming, in his ministry, the reign of God, the kingdom of God, God's plan to make everything right with the world had been inaugurated, had been announced. It was, it was there. It was at hand. And because of who he was and what he said and what he did, uh, the forces of this world, uh, governments compare, uh, teamed up with corrupt religion, rejected him. And they conspired against him and they killed him. And on a Roman cross, uh, they crucified God in the flesh. And yet the good news of Christmas, the good news of Easter, is that that is not the end of the story. Because he was buried in a tomb. And three days later, he gave it back. He walked out of a tomb and he appeared over a period of about 40 days to, I think, a couple hundred people. And then with his 12 closest followers gathered around him, he gave them kind of a final command, and then he ascended into heaven. And it says he, he sat down because he was done. His work was done, and he sat down on his throne at the right hand of God. And what the Bible tells us from beginning to end is that this is not a fairy tale. It is historical fact. And it is from that throne where he has been sitting since AD 33 that Jesus is ruling and reigning and governing all things. And it is from that throne where the river, this uh, kind of sign of God's presence and God's uh, promise to satisfy his people, it is from that throne that this river flows. And it is inevitable that God will bring this promise to completion. And it is from that throne that he enables us now, even now, to live with hope in the midst of a cynical world. What might that look like? I was, I was reminded this week, what would it look like to live now with hope in a cynical world because God is the one who is going to bring his promises to fulfillment? Uh, th- this week I was reminded of a great scene from uh, the Shawshank Redemption. You know, one of my favorite, it's, it's most of our favorite movies according to the internet. <laughs> but uh, the Shawshank Redemption is a story about uh, Andy, du- Andy Dufresne who's locked up in prison, um, falsely it turns out. And the question that the movie is really, kind of existential question the movie is really asking about is how can you live with hope uh, in a world that seems hopeless, uh, when your rights have been taken away, when you're walled in by a prison, how can you live with hope in a hopeless world? And at one point, uh, Andy, because he's had this relationship with a warden, uh, has access to the warden's office. He locks the warden, the prison warden, out of his office, and he turns on a Mozart album uh, and plays it over the loudspeaker in the prison. And... Um, as a result, he gets two weeks in solitary confinement. Uh, two weeks, no, they said nobody had ever been put in solitary confinement for two weeks, but uh, they put him alone in solitary confinement in, in, in this effort to like break his spirit. And when he returns to the yard after two weeks, and his friends and Red ask them, um, you know, what in the world were you thinking? And how did you survive that? This is what Andy says. He said, I had Mr. Mozart to keep me company. And he points and he taps his head and he said, it was in here and it was in here because that's the beauty of music. 
They can't get that from you. In these walls, uh, this is where it makes the most sense. You need it so that we don't forget that there are places in the world that aren't made out of stone. And someone says to him, what in the world are you talking about? And Andy says, hope. I'm talking about hope. What he's saying is this, that the beauty of Mozart, the beauty of music, allowed him, despite his predicament, despite his circumstances, to see um, the world through a different lens. It allowed him to survive. It allowed him to endure. It allowed him to thrive in a world that regularly felt meaningless because no matter where they put him, they couldn't take the music away from him. You can't take the music out of somebody's heart and out of somebody's mind. And Andy is saying the beauty of music allowed him to live with hope in a world that often feels meaningless. And what about you? What about you? Are you, are you thriving in life? Um, would you say like, yes, I'm firing on all pistons as I look back at 2019. Everything went exactly the way I wanted it to. It's rhetorical. <laughs> Are you filled with a hope that buoys you despite your circumstances? What would that even look like? Well, I want to I conclude um, with just kind of one practical point of application. And it's this, that to live a life of hope means to be a person who prays. Now, I realize that in some ways that probably feels very anticlimactic. I went to church, and the pastor told me I should pray more. (laughs) Um, But I am increasingly convinced that if we are living with hope, we will be people who pray. And if we let cynicism and the cynicism of our culture kind of take over, then we will find it very difficult to actually pray, even as we think we should pray. Uh, this week I had lunch. I have a um, kind of a monthly um, appointment where I meet with some of the other pastors um, in our denomination in Orange County, and we have lunch and just encourage and support each other. And somebody this week, as we were talking, um, he 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 said, "Why don't we?" He said, "The work of a pastor, according to the Book of Acts, is is prayer and the ministry of the Word. So why don't we why don't we go around and share our personal practices of prayer?" Now, I don't know if you ever struggle to pray. Well, I, I, my, my assumption is you struggle, struggle to pray. <laughs> but if you want to make a room full of, past, uh, full of pastors feel uncomfortable, you should ask them, how are you guys doing praying? Um, and look at the awkward blushing and hemming and hawing, and um, it's, really, it's really a sight to behold. <laughs> but um, one of my friends, he was sharing um, how he struggles to pray, and he says... Um, He said this, he said, I struggle to pray because I'm afraid that I will be disappointed. I struggle to pray because I'm I'm afraid that if I put my hope in God, that he's not going to come through. And so it's better to kind of not pray, and therefore I have no right to have higher expectations. And so when God doesn't answer my non-existent prayers, it's just, (laughs) it's a bummer, but... That's what cynicism looks like. That's what cynicism looks like. Cynical people will never pray. But my friend then said, but it's not like I've ever actually taken the time to pray and turned around and said, man, that was a total waste of time. 
But when we struggle with cynicism, we'll never be people who pray. I think a lot of people um, wonder how to pray. You know, as a pastor, uh, I, I feel like people say, well, I, I just don't feel like I know how to pray. But, friends, the, the reality is that we pray when we know how desperate we are. You know, if you're, if you're like sliding towards a cliff in desperation, you don't lack words to describe the way you're feeling, right? You just cry out to anyone and to everyone who might um, hear you. Desperate people don't struggle for words, they just cry out. It was interesting this last week, you may have seen this, I put a video on Facebook just saying, hey, I'm a pastor and I'd be happy to pray for you. None of you asked me to pray, which is fine, I mean, I pray for you guys too. Um, It's amazing how many people have sent me a message on Facebook asking me to pray for them. I mean, maybe maybe you're here this morning. Uh, If so, welcome. Um, And it it it, it was it's eye opening to me to see um, what has to be the loneliness of our culture, where some random guy, me that nobody know that you know these people don't know, offers to pray, and people are like coming out of the woodwork saying, "Yes, would you please, would you please pray for me." Why? Because we're desperate. And when we're desperate, we, craw- we call out to God. So what about you? What about you? I think if we, if we struggle to believe, yeah, sure, maybe we believe that there's a God who exists and he put some things into motion and a long, long time ago, 2,000 years ago, he showed up and did things in the world, but he seems very far removed from my day-to-day life. It's going to be very hard to pray in that context. But God is not removed from your daily context. What if God is actually doing far more in this world than we give him credit for? What if God is doing far more in your life than you give him credit for? What if God is doing far more in our church than we give him credit for? What if, um, you know, I don't, I don't know um, what your thought process is as you come into church on a Sunday morning or this Sunday morning, um, you know, is it possible for many of us that we have way uh, too low of expectations of what God might be doing as we gather uh, for church on a weekly basis? Um, you know, maybe we come in and we, we, uh, we say hi to friends and, and uh, we grab a cup of coffee and we sing some songs and we hear this, you know, hopefully inspiring message. And that's great, but what if God is actually doing far more than that? What if part of what worship is is what is God reshaping our hearts and reshaping our minds? What if God is lifting our expectations? What if he is actually at work in the world? What if he's in, at work in your life? What if he's actually at work in you right now? And what if church isn't just about, you know, a happy thought and seeing friends? I mean, that's great. Like, community's a huge part of what we're doing here. But what if it's what God is doing to reshape us, to become people who believe that he is at work in this world, that he is present? What if coming to worship each week is part of what God uses to enable us to be people who live, hopefully, in the midst of a world that has a veneer of awesomeness and a lot of other stuff underneath the surface? What if God wants to make us a people who live with hope in an age of cynicism? 
What if he wants to make us a church of people who pray for each other? What if he wants to make us a church that is hopefully reliant on himself so that we pray and as we do, we discover that he is more than enough? How, how would we know? How would we have the confidence to live like that's true? We have the confidence to live like that's true because, because of Christmas. Because 2,000 years ago, at a very specific time, at a very specific place, God came down. I'm a uh, father, I've got four kids, and a regular occurrence in our house is I'm upstairs in my bedroom, and there is something going on downstairs that is just a problem. (laughs) And usually I start by saying, hey, knock it off, and it doesn't change anything. (laughs) And then I say again, a little bit more forcefully, hey, knock it off, and finally get to the point where I actually have to go down there and fix the problem. And friends, Christmas is the good news that God has heard that there is a problem. And he has finally come down to fix it. And he doesn't come down angry and stern and annoyed, willing to you know, do whatever he has to to make things quiet. <laughs> but he comes down gently and tenderly and lives the life we should have lived. And he died the death that we deserved. And he rose again. And he ascended into heaven. And he now reigns and he rules from his throne. And it's from that throne that the water, the river of the water of life, flows and will one day flow into every corner of the earth so that everyone will know God face to face, even now as the waters cover the sea. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for this glorious picture of what you have in store for your people. And I pray, God, that our hearts uh, would be filled with something um, far more glorious than we could even really dare put into words. That, God, you are making everything right, and one day that will be finished. And so now we put our hope in your uh, final work. And doing that enables us to be joyful people in the present. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.